Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness, to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you today just humbled and grateful to be called by your name, to be your people, to be your special possession. God, it's such an honor to belong to the family of God, to know that, God, you have become a father to us, You love us with an everlasting love. You're with us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Thank you so much for that good news. God, we thank you today for the church that you've given to us here at Apostles Church. This local body of believers who get to gather together every single week and worship you and exalt your name and fellowship with each other, and serve each other, and love each other. Thank you for this church family. God, would you continue to knit our hearts together in love, in truth? God, would you help us to be peaceable and unified? God, that we might bring you glory, and that we might represent you well. God, today we even ask that you, Holy Spirit, would Minister to each and every one of us that you would continue transforming our hearts, renewing our minds, conforming us into the image of your one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We long to be like Jesus. And so God, would you just purify us and strip away all of the sin and all of the things that are making us not like Christ and help us to grow up into him So God, we just commit these requests to you today. We ask, Lord, that as we've read these these verses and this passage of Scripture, that God, you would use it to sanctify your people for yourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please be seated. And once again, welcome to Apostles Church. In high school, I took, like many people in California, two years of Spanish. And tragically, the amount of Spanish that I learned in those two years was muy poco. 
I think my Spanish teacher would be proud of that, though. Um, and yet, as we all know, if I had spent even half that amount of time, let's say just a year, living abroad somewhere, perhaps Mexico for a year, in that time, I probably would have become very fluent in Spanish. And that's because the best way to learn a foreign language is not to sit in a classroom a couple hours a week and read textbooks. It's actually to immerse yourself in that culture and be around people who you can watch speak the language and you can hear speaking that language. And I bring that up to say that there's a similar dynamic at play in the language of prayer. The language of prayer is caught perhaps even more than it is taught. Hearing prayers offered in the church or hearing the prayers of other Christians, other believers around you, helps us to learn to pray. This is, in fact, one of the reasons why we encourage even those who are brand new to their faith to come to our monthly prayer service that we have on the first Wednesday of every month. And we say, listen, even if you're not yet comfortable praying, come and hear other prayers being offered and agree with those prayers in your heart and participate that way in the prayer service. What we've read together, what Daniel read for us here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is a prayer of King David. And so we're sort of overhearing him pray in a certain sense this morning. And David was a great man of faith, and he was a great man of prayer as the Psalms attest. And so you and I, I believe, are going to be very enriched as we look at and consider this great prayer from David together. Now the circumstances of the prayer that David offers here are what we studied last week together. It's the beginning half of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's verses 1 through 17. And we know that that's the circumstances for this prayer because of the way verse 18 began. Look at verse 18 in your Bible again. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said. Then King David went in. When did he go in? Well, he went in and sat before the Lord and prayed after God had made extraordinary promises to him that we studied last week in verses 1 through 17. Now, what are those extraordinary promises? Well, I won't say you have to go back and listen to last week's sermon to get them. I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version. Those extraordinary promises are what we call the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant that God made with David where God committed himself to blessing David and through David blessing his people. And as we talked about last week, there are really three main elements to this promise or to this covenant that God made with David. The first thing is found back in verse 9 where God promised that he would make for David a great name. That David would become one of the mighty ones of the earth. The second part of it in verses 10 and 11 is that God promised that through David, he would give his people Israel a permanent place to dwell in, a permanent home, and that he would give them complete rest from all of their enemies. The final component to this promise, and certainly the most shocking of all of them, is found in verse 11 until the end, verse 17, where God promised to this king that of his kingdom there would be no end. God promised that David would have an eternal kingdom. That for all of history there would be somebody from his body that would sit on his throne and rule over the people of God. So that's the context and in light of this news that David received from God, of all these magnificent ways God was going to bless him, David comes now to offer this prayer. The sermon title this morning is A Prayerful Response to God's Extravagant Grace. Now before we work through each verse, which we'll do momentarily, I just want to make one general observation for us about the prayer. This prayer that David offers is very much God-centered. David, in, he employs this unique address for God that you don't often see in the pages of Scripture, and he uses it seven times. In the English Standard Version, which is what we read out of this morning and what the Bible's under the 
seats in front of you are, in the English Standard Version, this address of God, address to God is translated, Lord God. Lord God, it's used seven times in this prayer. This expression that David uses indicates God's authority and God's rule. In the Hebrew, and we have this on the screen here, in the Hebrew, the two words there are Adonai, Yahweh. And the reason why the ESV translates it Lord God is because Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord, referring to the ruler or the sovereign, the one with authority. And Yahweh is always translated in our English Bibles with Lord in all caps. Because Yahweh is God's covenant name that he gave to his people. And so if they were to translate it directly, it would just be Lord, Lord, which feels redundant. So the ESV translates it Lord God. But the idea here is that David is praying and he's saying, Lord, sovereign one, ruler of all things, my Lord. The NIV, the New International Version, actually captures this really well. They translate this expression, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, seven different times in this prayer. The idea here is that David is acknowledging his rightful place before the God of Israel. David is going to refer to himself in this prayer 10 different times as your servant. So sovereign Lord is who he's calling God and he's addressing himself as just God's servant. And all this is to say that David in this beautiful prayer is coming to God, not as his buddy, certainly not as his equal, but as his subject and his servant. While it is true that God intends to bless David incredibly, David is fully aware that it is not because God is obligated to do so. You are God. You are the sovereign Lord. You call the shots and I'm just your servant. When Jesus taught us how to pray in the famous Lord's Prayer, he began this way. This is Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this, he teaches us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Yes, we have a personal relationship with him. He's our Father in heaven, just like David had a personal relationship with Yahweh. But his name is to be hallowed. He is God. He is Lord of all. So David gets this right. He, he frames the whole prayer properly. He knows who God is and he knows who he is in relation to God. Let's work through the text together then. There are three aspects to this prayer at least. But it begins with what I think flows out of what we've just been talking about. It begins with incredible humility in verses 18 through 21. You probably picked it up when we read it, but we'll look at it again. Look at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David's prayer to the Lord is saturated in humility. It's dripping off of all of the words in these opening verses. David apparently went into the curtained tent there in Jerusalem that housed the ark of God. And it says there in verse 18 that he sat before the Lord. Likely as David entered into the place where God's presence was, he got down on his knees like this and he sat back on his feet and he prayed to the Lord. He says, who am I, O Lord? Even in his posture, Sitting before the Lord, David is communicating humility. You are the sovereign ruler. You are the sovereign God, the sovereign Lord. And I am just your servant, Lord. Who am I, he asks. It's a great question. Who am I, O Lord, are the first words on David's lips. And guess what? That question, who am I, is the question of a person who feels undeserving. David was a man who was truly blown away by all that God had done for him. David, despite all of his accomplishments, and he had many, never lost sight of who was responsible for it. Look at what he says, that you have brought me thus far. 
Who am I, Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Look again, or look also at verse 21. David says this down in verse 21. He says, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Guys, notice that David locates the cause of all of his blessings in the past and even as he's now looking forward into the future, he locates the cause of all of those blessings in God's heart, not in his own actions. It is because of God's purpose and because of God's own heart that David has been richly blessed. And guess what? The same is true for every child of God. It is only because of God's purpose and according to his own heart that we've been so richly blessed. As Christians, we know we do not deserve God's love. We know we do not deserve God choosing us or sending his own son to save us from our sins and to bring us into his family. As Christians, we know that we can't earn God's love. We can't earn God's mercy. We can't earn God's grace. Indeed, the scripture tells us it's a gift freely given to us by a loving God. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world, or you could read that, Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God freely gave us his son. And it flowed out of his own love, not our actions or our behavior. What this means is the gospel of grace is good news for the undeserving. It's good news for the undeserving. We don't earn God's love. We don't work our way into God's heart. We are loved by God and he makes us his children through Christ. Who am I that you you have brought me thus far is the heart posture of every child of God. If you are truly a Christian, that's the question on your lips. Who am I that you have brought me thus far, Lord? I want to share with us one implication of this idea that the gospel of grace is good news for the undeserving. One implication for the non-Christian Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. I want to think through one implication of this for you. And then one implication of this for those of us who are Christians here today. That you believe in Jesus and he is your Lord and your Savior and you're living for him. For the non-Christian, here's one implication. If, if this is true, that the gospel, the good news of the Bible, is good news for the undeserving then God's offer of grace and mercy is for everyone, including you. There is no standard that you need to measure up to in order to become eligible for God's grace. By definition, it is freely given to the undeserving. You don't need to come from a certain family or have a certain set of beliefs that you were raised in or have a certain moral track record for God's grace to be offered to you. I want you to listen very carefully. The only condition for receiving God's grace is casting aside any pride that tries to tell you that you don't need it. Let me say that one more time. The only condition for receiving God's grace is casting aside any pride that tries to tell you that you don't need it. So what do you do? Well, you humble yourself enough to admit that you don't deserve God's blessings. To admit that you haven't done anything to deserve God's blessings. And you, like all of us, have done plenty of things not to deserve God's blessings. In James 4, 6, we read, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God's grace is allergic to human pride. He opposes the proud. But God's grace flows toward the humble, the person who says to God, 
I need you. Now let's think about one implication for the Christian. For all of us who name the name of Jesus here. Because the grace of God is for the undeserving. Here's the application. Christians should be some of the most humble people on the planet. Right? I mean, think about it. What is there for us to be proud about? We, we didn't do anything to earn God's love and his grace and his mercy. Everything that we are and all that we have, family, is because of the grace of God. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything we have, Christian, is a result of the grace of God. So this strips us of pride. We have nothing to boast about. It's what God is doing in our lives and what he's done for us. And I'm afraid that all of us as Christians can believe the gospel of grace at one level and yet struggle to believe it fully at every level of our lives. Let me try to illustrate this for you. As a Christian, if you're a true Christian, then you can say, of course, I do not deserve God's love. And apart from God's grace, I would never, ever get to heaven. If you're a Christian, you believe that and you would say that. But we can so often believe that and then look at other good things in our lives and begin to take credit for them. As if those blessings are somehow the result of our own effort and work ultimately. So for example, you could look at your successful business and you could say, well, my business is successful because I work harder than other people. Because of my own ingenuity, my creativity, my skill set. I'm sharper than other people. You could think those things. And there's certainly, at one level, truth that those could be some of the causes to the blessing in your company. But as a Christian, you will always need to work yourself deeper than that and say, underneath those causes, there is a deeper cause that has blessed my business. And his name is Jesus. Because there are so many factors that are outside of my control that have allowed my business to be a success. And God could change any of those things at any time and suddenly my business would no longer be a success. And so we recognize or we ought to recognize that the successful business, sure you play a part in that, but it's ultimately due to the grace of God. Or what about our marriages? Maybe you have a great marriage. Your marriage is flourishing. We can be tempted at times to think, well, yeah, of course my marriage is going well because I'm a great husband. I'm not saying that personally, um, but, but we could think that maybe as a Christian, I'm a great husband. I, I'm sacrificial for my wife. I show up. I love her. I serve her. I try to lead her faithfully in our home, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all of these things that I'm doing that are producing this great marriage, this healthy marriage. Well, friends, as Christians, of course, there's some truth to that, but we have to think deeper than that. I mean, there are so many things that could impact you and change you or impact your spouse and change your spouse that could throw a wrench in your entire marriage relationship. And it's by the grace of God that the two of you have the personalities and the heart's desire to honor the Lord and follow his scriptures in the marriage. And it's due to the grace of God that you two are on the same page, going in the same direction. Something could change in your spouse that wrecks your marriage in the next five years. And so we've got to get really good at saying, but for the grace of God. It is all the grace of God. We could do the same thing with our health. Well, I'm in great health because I eat well and I am disciplined with my exercise and I'm not like other people. It's kind of like the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? I'm not like other people who eat donuts three times a week and don't love kale. (laughs) And we can, and and, in every one of these instances, here's the problem is that when we start locating the cause of the things that are going right in our lives in ourself, rather than in the Lord, it produces a really, really pernicious pride in our lives. And you will notice that if you're not good at tracing everything back to God as the cause of it, you'll notice 
If you're perceptive that you are beginning to look down on other people, well, yeah, that person's not succeeding because they don't do all the things I do. Well, their marriage isn't blessed like ours because they're not doing all the stuff. So pride can creep in there. Family, what I'm trying to say to you is that the fact that the gospel is good news for the undeserving is meant to leave us a humble people. Pride is sinful and grace makes us humble. In fact, I'll say it this way. If we aren't growing in humility, we are not growing in grace. Jesus was gentle and lowly or humble. Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself. If we're not growing in humility, we are not growing in grace. David here at sort of the zenith of his earthly success is not going, of course I've done all of this. Look how great I am. He is saying, who am I, O Lord, that you would do all of these great things for me, he is humbled by what God has done for him. And he is blown away and humbled by all that God still intends to do for him. Look at verse 19 again. David says, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. Although God had already done so much for this once lowly shepherd boy, raising him up now to be the king over Israel, God has now made it clear to David through the prophecy of Nathan last week that we studied that David has seen nothing yet. That God still intends to do so much more in the future. So much more than he could have ever imagined for himself. All that God had done up to this point in David's life, David is saying, in light of what you've now promised God, all of that stuff was just a small thing. It seems a small thing. You have promised me so much more. And I couldn't help but think about how this is going to be the feeling that every single one of us will have on that day when we enter into all that God has promised for us in Christ. I mean, think about it. Yes, on one hand, God has already done so much for us. In Christ, he's forgiven our sins. In Christ, he's made peace with us and himself. In Christ, he's given us a spiritual family, the church. God has filled our lives now with purpose and direction. God has given us his holy word, which guides us and leads us into blessing. And yet, like David, we can look forward to what other things are promised to us. And guys, they're astonishing. There is coming a day when every single one of us will listen to me. You will share in Jesus' resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Just as death couldn't hold him down, death will not hold you down. It will not have the final say in your life. You will share in Christ's resurrection. Family, we will have an inheritance in heaven. It's reserved for us right now. So like dinner reservations that you make, you make them right now and they're waiting for you at 7.30 tonight. Peter says that we have an inheritance reserved in heaven. So when you get there, the inheritance is waiting. It's incredible to think about. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to make all things new. All the sin that destroys our relationships and our mental and physical health will be done away with. We'll dwell with him in a place of peace and righteousness and joy forever. And we'll be reunited with with our loved ones who have died in the Lord. And that aching that we feel because we miss these people that we love will be no more. We'll be reunited with them in God's presence. John 1.16 puts it this way, from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Guys, we have already received so much from the Lord and yet in comparison to the glories to be revealed, we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't seen anything yet. And this kind of awareness in the Christian life leads us to the next section of David's prayer, which is praise or adoration. Look at verse 22. Notice the shift here. First, David's humbled. He's blown away by what God has done for him. And then he shifts to start praising the Lord at verse 22. He says, therefore, or in light of these things, 
You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Verse 24. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. David shifts here. In light of all that God has done for him, David exclaims, God is great, and there is no one like our God. David here is stressing the incomparability of God. There is no one like his God, like our God. And the reason for that is because there is no other God, number one. And number two, our God has done something for us. He has redeemed us and made us his own. And so right there in the prayer, the incomparability of God gives way to the uniqueness of Israel. David is saying, there's no God like you. And he's saying, there is no people like your people, the people of Israel. There's no nation like the nation of Israel. Because Israel was the one nation on earth at this point in history that the true and living God redeemed out of slavery. David here recalls the exodus from Egypt. When God, through great and awesome things, redeemed the Hebrew people out of slavery under the Pharaoh of Egypt. And David's pointing out that God did this not through normal, natural means, but through awesome things, through signs and wonders. It was all God acting on behalf of his people. They were slaves, they were powerless, and the Egyptians were their taskmasters. But God stepped in and supernaturally delivered them. Do you remember the stories? David's recalling them. There were 10 plagues that God sent down on Egypt to break the will of the Pharaoh so that the Pharaoh would be humbled and would finally let the people go. And the final plague, of course, was the death of every firstborn in Egypt. And that plague even hit Pharaoh's own home. His son was dead that night. And finally, he lets the people go and Moses leads them and they start heading out and then the Pharaoh once again hardens his heart and he changes his mind and he gets his army and he pursues after them and it looks like Moses and Israel, these people that God had called his own, are going to die there as they're backed up against the Red Sea. But God, he says, Moses, don't have fear. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Are you guys seeing how all of this is about what God's doing and not what Moses or Israel's doing? They're backed up against the Red Sea and God says, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. And then, boom, the Red Sea is parted. And they walk through on dry ground. And just as soon as they get to the other side and the Egyptian army comes down into that same dry pathway, God causes the sea to come and crash on top of them again. And he delivers these people for himself. And David's in awe of this. He's in awe of it. I mean, God, you went through these great lengths to make us your people, to save us. This is incredible. Moses himself, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, was in awe of God's mighty power displayed over the Egyptians. Listen to what Moses writes in the book of Deuteronomy. This is in chapter 4, verse 34. It's very similar to what David's saying here. Moses says, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself, from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown, why? That you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Same lesson David's getting here. God, you have proven yourself to be the one true God and to be mighty and incomparable because of what you have done for your people. And so all of this shows that Israel is special, or you could say unique, only because they are the one people on the face of the earth that the true God redeemed and made his own. You can see where I'm going with this, right? I hope so. Church... 
This is the one thing that makes us special. We are unique and we are special, not because we're great, but because we are the only privileged group in the world that the one true God has redeemed from our sins and actually made his own. Here's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Just think of how amazing and how exalted this language is. It says, but you, all of you, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I love this line, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, think about that. We are God's special possession. We are like Israel, a holy nation. And this is so ennobling. I mean, you can, you can see it, you can hear it in David, the language here. He is in awe and uplifted by God's selection of Israel. At our core, every human being wants to be wanted, right? Every human being wants to belong. Every human being desires to be chosen. We learn this from the earliest of ages. I can still remember being on the playground in elementary school. And there's that moment where we're going to choose some sports teams for something. And everybody lines up and there's two captains who get to stand out there and give half of us a wonderful experience and the other half psychological issues for the rest of our life. Right? Because you're standing there and it's like, I want you. You get to be on my team. And the, the line just thins out and thins out and thins out. And, and every one of us as young kids is standing there going, I want to be chosen. I want to belong. I want a place on the team. Of course, the schools don't learn this. We get older, then we're in high school. They're like, these school dances are coming. And every girl is spending like a month before that with all this anxiety. Like, is a guy going to invite me to go to the dance? They want to be chosen. They want to belong. And in my high school, at least, they would flip that once a year with a dance. They called it Sadie Hawkins back then. Where the girls had to invite the guys to the dance. That was so the guys could get a taste of their own medicine. And know what it feels like to want to be chosen. To want to be invited. But there's a longing in every human heart for that. That we want to be chosen. We want to belong. And again, this is so ennobling because the scriptures are teaching us. That for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus. The reason why we put our faith in Jesus is because God chose you. Because God set his love upon you. And God is bringing you, has brought you, I should say, into his own people. He's invited you to the dance. It's amazing. And so we have to keep two ideas in, held together in our mind here. The, the first is that we're not better than other people based on what I'm saying. Remember, the gospel makes us humble. We're not better than other people, family. But we are blessed beyond other people. Nobody is blessed like we are. If you're a Christian, we belong to the living God. And he has redeemed us and called us his own. And so we could ask, as David asked of Israel, who is like us? The bride of Christ purchased by his own blood. That's how special the church of Jesus Christ is. So David praises God for who he is. And he praises God for the unique and special place that he had given to David's people, the nation of Israel. But at verse 25, David's prayer shifts into a new and final direction. And he finally gets to where many of us start our prayers, which is petition. Hey God, I actually want to ask you to do something. That's where he gets at verse 25. Look at the change Here's verse 25. He says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Finally, here at verse 25, David comes to actually ask God to do what God had promised to do, to bring it to pass, to bring it about. And notice that David is not asking God to do this only for his own sake. We see that in verse 26. He says, And your name will be magnified forever. 
saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. What's David saying here? Well, he's aware of this, that in bringing these promises to pass, God would show the world his faithfulness and his power to do what he, would, what he said he would do. And therefore, he's saying, God, do what you said you were going to do, and so magnify your name forever. Let the nation see that you do love Israel. Let the nation see that you are alive, that you are active, and that you're a promise keeper. You said you would establish my house forever, and now I'm asking you, do that, Lord, and magnify your name forever. He goes on in verse 27. He says, For you, O Lord of hosts, or because you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Look at verse 27. Notice there that that David is saying, Lord, I'm not praying this audacious, extravagant prayer. That you would just give me this eternal dynasty. I'm not praying that for no reason. This isn't something I made up. The reason I'm confident and bold to ask of you something so outlandish and audacious is because you revealed this to me. And you promised me that you wanted to do this. That's where this is coming from. And so in verse 27, David is is telling the Lord, That he found the courage to pray for God to do this great thing. Only because God had said to him in verse 27, I will build you a house. In other words, David's boldness and confidence in prayer came from the fact that he was praying in alignment with what God had already promised. God said he was going to do it and David said, Oh, if this is what God is promising then I can ask that God do it with complete faith and courage and confidence. And family, this is where you and I can find boldness and confidence in our prayers as well. In 1 John 5.14, we read this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we can have this confidence toward God when we're asking him things, That if we're asking him things that are according to his will, then he will hear us. And the implication is he will respond favorably to our prayers. Now, we might want to protest at this moment and said, well, yeah, I mean, if God sent a prophet to me like he did David when he sent Nathan to him to reveal some great promise to me, then I would be very confident that that's exactly what God intends to do. And I would pray a bold prayer like David. But the response to that would be, shouldn't you and I have the same level of confidence as David when we are praying according to the scriptures? Here's 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Peter says this about the scriptures, this book that we hold in our hands. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of what? Scripture. He's talking about written prophecy, not oral prophecy like what Nathan gave. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying to us, you guys, we have, we should have the utmost confidence in everything that is recorded in this book because these prophecies that have been written as scripture 
did not come from, they were not produced by the will of a person. It was the Holy Spirit, it was God himself who worked through human authors to produce these great truths and these great promises that we can build our lives upon. And therefore, you and I can have boldness and confidence every much as much as David did whenever we come to God in prayer, if we are praying according to the scriptures. I want to give you a little bit of a template from verse 28. Because I think we can take the words of verse 28 and we can adopt them as our own when we are praying according to the scriptures. Here's verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. And then he says in 29, now therefore, would you do this? Look at that, that, that template there. <clears throat> this is where David's confidence is coming from. He's saying, you are God, so you are capable, you are able. Your words are true. You never lie. So if you say it, you mean it. And you have promised this particular good thing for your servant. This is what it looks like to take the promises of God's word and pray them boldly in faith. You are God, your words are true, and you have promised such and such. And so, Lord, I am asking that you would now bring these things to pass. So what has God promised to us in his word that we can pray with confidence about? Let me just give you a few as we close. Friends, we can pray with confidence for God to raise up pastors and missionaries to take the gospel to all the peoples of this world. When Jesus was walking this earth in Matthew's gospel, he looked at the crowds. This is Matthew 9.36. And he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is saying, look, I know there's a massive harvest out there. Pray then and ask my father to send laborers into the harvest. We can pray that kind of a prayer with confidence. We can pray with confidence for God to save the non-Christians that we love and care about and know. And I know some of us might go, well, is that going to obligate God to save every single person that I pray for? And let me say it again. We can pray for, or with confidence, and we should pray with boldness, audacious prayers, confident, expectant prayers for that wayward child, that unbelieving spouse, that stubborn parent. We should be saying, Lord, would you save them? Here's what 2 Peter 3.9 tells us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we can sit and say, well, I'm not going to pray boldly about these people because, well, I know that not everybody's going to be saved and God has a hand in all of it. You can pray that way if you choose to. Or you can say, God, you have said that your heart is that none would perish and that all would come to repentance. And so, no, I don't understand the mind of God and the sovereignty of God and salvation, but I do know God's heart is for unbelieving people and that many people are going to come to repentance. And guess who I care about? I care about my son or my daughter or my mother. Lord, would you save them? Would you find it in your heart to save them? We can pray with boldness for the Christian, the non-Christians that we care about. We can pray with confidence to God to take away our fears and our anxieties. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can pray with confidence for God to deliver you from the sins that you are struggling with. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we read, No temptation has overtaken you or overtaken me. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Guys, we can pray with confidence, Lord, 
give me a way of escape and give me the power to choose to go in that direction. Friends, we can pray with confidence that God will help you to gain victory over sexual sin and pornography and lust. Here's 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God. This is what God desires. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So no Christian should ever sit there and raise the white flag and say, well, I'm just always going to look at pornography or I'm just always going to be ruled by these impure thoughts. That is not true. That does not have to be the case. It is God's will that you live in holiness. And we can confidently ask God to help us gain victory in this area. We can pray with confidence that God will reveal and develop gifts in your life that will help bless your church family. Maybe you struggle with that. How can I be useful in the church? 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has gifts for you. And they're not just for you. They're for the common good. Good, and you can pray and say, Lord, reveal these things to me and cultivate these gifts in my life so that I can be a blessing to your people. We can pray with confidence that God's presence is with you in every situation. Joshua 1 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's said in the New Testament this way, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And finally, we can pray with confidence that God has a plan in your life, even if right now your life has been turned upside down. We can pray that with confidence that God has a plan in your life that will ultimately be shown to have been for your good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It certainly doesn't look good right now, but somehow, some way, in the, in, in the immense wisdom of God Almighty, he will work even this season out for good ends. Today, we've overheard David's prayerful response to God's extravagant grace. In summary, God's grace toward us should lead us to humble gratitude to praise and adoration, and to a boldness and a confidence to ask God to bring about all that he's promised to us in his word. And my hope is that God would work this into each and every one of us for his glory and for our collective good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.